0: Hello and welcome to Macrobytes, the economics and politics podcast series from Aberdeen. My name is Luke Bartholomew and I'm joined today by my co-host Paul Diggle to talk about the various different challenges facing Europe at the moment. And there is an awful lot going on between inflation, stalling economy, concerns about energy supplies, political crisis, monetary policy changes. So there will be a lot to talk about and we will try and draw some connections and some of the interactions between these themes as we go. But Paul, perhaps the best place to start is just with you laying out what the economic situation is looking like at the moment.
1: Well, the short story is that it's not looking particularly great in the European economy. Um, Just looking at the economic data flow, survey data, so so measures of consumer confidence, are extremely weak at the moment. They're actually at all-time lows, lower than they were at the trough of the financial crisis and COVID. I think we know why they're so weak. It's because people are watching the news, they see headlines of war, high inflation, they experience high inflation um, constantly at the petrol pump at the supermarket in very high-touch areas. If you look at other sources of economic data, things like um, PMI surveys, which we monitor quite closely as economists, industrial production, retail sales, GDP, they're not quite as bad. They're not at all-time lows, but they've certainly been worsening recently as well. So we've had PMI prints below 50, which means they're actually consistent with a contraction in the European economy. I would say the macro outlook is pretty Poor at the moment. The data flow is weak and recession is a very real possibility in the European economy.
0: So that's a pretty poor picture right now. But I guess the big concern for Europe is what things are going to look like in a few months when winter rolls round and there are big concerns about what the state of the energy outlook is going to be given talk of Russia using energy supply to Europe as a political tool, perhaps even going so far as to cutting off entirely its exports of gas to Europe, which obviously have huge consequences for the European economy in terms of the need for energy rationing, hurting businesses and households. So Paul, can you talk us through sort of what some of those impacts would be in more detail and how big a risk that kind of scenario is?
1: Yeah, I think the first thing to say is that the immediate risk of the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, this gas pipeline from Russia into Germany, which carries an awful lot of Europe's natural gas, which had been closed for a week or so of scheduled routine annual maintenance, the immediate risk was that actually that wouldn't get turned back on and you would be immediately into the gas shortages, gas rationing scenario. And that didn't happen. The pipeline has just been turned back on. There was an important turbine piece that was being repaired, which seemed um, in Canada actually, which was held up in international sanctions against Russia. Which in the end was able to to make its way back onto the pipeline and allow gas to, to flow again. So that immediate risk has been cleared. But as you say, Luke, there are some big hurdles ahead. There is probably three alternative realistic scenarios. There is a best case, which is that with Nord Stream 1 turned back on, flowing at about 40% of pre-Ukraine um, invasion norms, that that situation basically continues. Europe has a certain amount of shortage that that it has certainly weighed on the economy somewhat, but we continue at about these levels of supply, and Europe is able to slowly build up its gas reserves into the winter, follow through on its plan of transitioning away from gas and fossil fuels more generally towards more renewables, more more nuclear. Um, that's not helpful, but it's not kind of instant recession. That's the best case. Then there's a kind of a worst case, which is actually there is a, shut, a full shut off of, of, of Russian gas at some point. Perhaps because with the expansion of Russia's military aims in Ukraine, there's um, a, a revival or a, a deepening of the economic conflict with Europe, and you get a shut off. And there's various modeling out there which tries to think about what this would do to the economy. It's about 1% to 4% off GDP. I mean, that's a very big range, um, given the uncertainties. It's particularly bad for Germany, Italy, um, Austria, Slovakia. These are all countries with quite high Russian gas dependencies. It's particularly bad for industries, which are very gas-intensive, certain areas of manufacturing, cement, glass production, but it's bad for the economy as a whole, and it would basically mean, I think, instant recession. And then there's a middle scenario in which it's some kind of mixture of the two intermittent on and offs, which I think you would also want to think of as being being a a drag on the economy.
0: Now, we can get to Italy in a moment which you talked of as being one of the worst hit economies there, but another economy country that you mentioned, being particularly exposed is Germany. And I guess that sort of constitutes a bit of a change in the way that we tended to think about Germany in the post-financial crisis period, that it's this powerhouse economy in Europe, it's the one that drives growth over the continent. So I guess I'm wondering, sort of, we talked a little bit with Helen Thompson, I suppose, in a previous episode, how Germany got itself in that position. But what does Europe look like when Germany is struggling as an economy?
1: Well, it's an interesting reversal, as you say, Luke, of the normal situation, although at least the one we've used to over the past decade or so. And it would actually require European solidarity that was helping or pointing at Germany. You can imagine, say, the um, redirecting gas supplies around Europe into Germany to support a manufacturing sector that had to face rationing in this worst plausible worst case scenario of a shut off. So it's solidarity that needs to help Germany. And while that is not the situation we've used over the past decade, remember, if you go back to the 90s or the early 2000s, Germany was the sick man of Europe after reunification with a quite a rigid labor market before the Hartz reforms. So it would almost be harking back to that situation of a a much weaker German economy. But it's the largest economy in the Eurozone. Um, A German economy in recession is almost certainly a European-wide economy in recession. So it's not like this would be some kind of idiosyncratic contained
0: shock when it happens in your biggest economy. It happens everywhere else as well. So turning then to Italy and one of our recurring themes on this podcast is the important interaction between politics and economics. And we've talked about you know, the likely impact of high inflation and poor economic growth in hitting the political system, putting various um, political systems under pressure. And Italy seems to be one of the first places that that story is playing out. So, Paul, can you talk us through what's been going on in Italy recently and the state of the government there?
1: Yeah, let me try. It's a complicated situation. So Draghi, the former ECB president, had been the prime minister for the past year and a half or so, and he led a quite a broad coalition of parties. And he is the unelected or was the unelected technocratic prime minister, which Italy has a tradition of in moments of crisis but supported by a large spectrum of the parties within the parliament. So that's how he I think derived his political legitimacy. And then coming into a crucial piece of budgetary legislation, which was passing a, a package of fiscal measures, which were meant to partly tackle the cost of living crisis. One of the coalition partners, the Five Star Movement, actually withdrew its support, From the coalition and from the measure, the budget measure, because it saw it actually as insufficiently supportive. So it was exactly as you say, Luke, the politics of inflation playing out, calls for more fiscal support played into one of the parties in the coalition then withdrawing from it. And because budgetary measures occur under the confidence rule, they're kind of simultaneously confidence votes in the government, that was a vote of no confidence in a way. Now, in the end, actually, Draghi was able to pass the legislation and the bill because his coalition was so broad, the withdrawal of one party didn't affect his ability to pass the bill. But I think he personally saw the removal of support from one party as an existential risk to his prime ministership because he's unelected, because he's technocratic. I think he wanted a very broad base of support. And so he tendered his resignation to the president, Mattarella, Mattarella actually rejected the resignation initially and said, go back and try and stitch back together the coalition. Draghi tried to do that, but in the process, actually, it frayed further and other coalition partners also increased their demands and Draghi then resigned a second time. Um, And this time, Mattarella had no choice but to accept it because by that point, actually, a lot of the parties of the coalition was was splintering off. And Italy is now heading to um, snap elections in September this year.
0: And what should we expect from those elections, Paul, given what polling looks like at the moment?
1: Yeah, so the polling reveals no single obvious coalition that is guaranteed to win those elections, but the most likely coalition that that could emerge in the lead looks like a a right-wing coalition made up of three parties in Italy, Fratelli d'Italia, Brothers of Italy, Liga and Forza Italia, Berlusconi's party. And two of those, actually, Liga and Forza, were partners in the Draghi coalition as well. They've actually lost support in the polls somewhat. So Fratelli d'Italia is likely to be the senior party in that coalition. So it's a a coalition of the right and parties that had a Eurosceptic past, which would have perhaps played that down a little bit more recently.
0: So given that skeptic past that's been played down recently, I mean, how much should we think that the Leopard has changed their spots there? Or was that a matter of political positioning to be part of the Draghi government? And the reason I ask is that you know, previously, one of the things that markets have been worried about is this idea of Italy leaving the Eurozone, Italy exit or EU as I quite like To call it or other names that it goes by, (laughs) that that concern has diminished. I think it's fair to say a little bit over the last few years. But you know, should that be something that markets start worrying about again, given the likely composition of the government?
1: Yeah, Italy exit was is definitely the sort of the traditional worry that investors have when they see um, the rise of populists in Italy. EU exit has actually really dampened down in the Italian political debate post the recovery fund, the big pan EU fiscal package that was done during the pandemic of which Italy was the biggest beneficiary. So, and those parties more broadly have kind of moderated their Euro-scepticism, um, just as they have, say, in France and with Le Pen's party, because that just turned out to be a bit less of a, a, a vote winner, and they pivoted to focus on cost-of-living questions, and that became the kind of dominant part, of the political narrative instead. So I don't think a, a, a Liga, Fratelli d'Italia, Forza government poses these kind of immediate EU-Eurozone Existential risks in the way it might have done in earlier periods post the financial crisis and and the European sovereign debt crisis. But it certainly poses risks that need to be taken account of by financial markets. In particular, those parties' adherence to EU fiscal rules, to fiscal sustainability, and to the reform agenda, which would continue to unlock recovery fund monies, would definitely be in question. They have agendas of, that look quite fiscally profligate, and that would start to run counter to what the recovery fund is asking of countries in return for, for money. So I think that's where the, the risk would probably lie. One could also imagine further down the road into a European recession, a period of macro-weakness, the questions of EU or Eurozone membership could in time resurface, especially given that, as I said, Euroscepticism is a kind of tradition within those parties, even if it's not front and centre right now. But more broadly, the risk distribution, the panoply of potential outcomes has certainly shifted a bit more negative at the margin relative to when there was this known technocrat in the Prime Minister's office, Draghi.
0: So one of the ways in which that increased risk manifests itself in markets is an increase in the borrowing cost of Italian government debt over other Eurozone countries. And that's a dynamic we've been seeing a lot of recently. And into that fray has recently stepped the European Central Bank just announcing a new tool, which it thinks will try and help cap some of that increase in Italian and other government borrowing costs. So Paul, Do you want to talk a little bit about what that tool involves? And is it the kind of thing that we should think takes away some of that risk that you were just describing?
1: Yeah, so the ECB announced this anti-fragmentation tool that they called the Transmission Protection Instrument, the TPI. By the way, yet another three-letter abbreviation of the ECB that we're going to have to remember and use. And what that tool basically does is it allows the ECB to make potentially unlimited purchases of sovereign debt of a country where it sees an unwarranted, volatile situation in that country's sovereign debt market. So one could imagine a very big widening of the cost of Italian over German sovereign debt, the the funding cost, um, which the ECB saw as impairing the transmission mechanism of its monetary policy into the whole eurozone, and it would use this tool to push back against it. By the way, it's not QE. Because these purchases are intended to be sterilized. So at the same time as buying one country's sovereign debt, it might be selling another's or in some other way, draining liquidity out of the financial system. So it's not actually monetary policy loosening as such. It's not QE but it is a way, I think, to get the right constellation of financial conditions that the ECB wants to see during its tightening cycle. Now, is it the sort of thing that can help tackle the increased borrowing costs in Italy that have occurred around this political crisis and the the resignation of Draghi? I'm not sure it's perfectly designed for that, and nor am I sure if the ECB would actually want to use it in a situation like that. Remember, the language of the tool is that it Is used to tackle unwarranted widenings in the cost of of debt of Eurozone members. It's not clear if a volatile political situation, the resignation of a prime minister and the likelihood of a more populist um, government that would spend more and adhere slightly less to Europe's fiscal rules is actually unwarranted as such. And the sort of thing that, that the ECB would step in and push back against. The other thing to say is that there's reasonably strict conditionality attached to the tool as well. So the ECB wants to make sure that countries are fully compliant with Europe's fiscal framework in order to be eligible for, for the transmission protection instrument. Markets seem to initially say that that conditionality was too strong and a country like Italy might fail um, to adhere to that conditionality. I, what I would say in response to that is that in the end, it's actually the ECB's decision whether they're going to use the transmission protection instrument with a particular country or not. They're not going to be completely bound by these conditionality rules.
0: So the other big decision that the ECB has just made is to increase its policy rates by half a percentage point. It's the first interest rate increase since 2011, indeed, an interest rate increase, which I think history probably hasn't judged, especially kindly. So given what we've discussed in terms of the inflation outlook, the economic outlook for Europe, what do you think the likely path of interest rates is from here, from the European Central Bank now that this era of negative interest rates has ended at least for now? And how likely is it that the European Central Bank is walking into another policy mistake like it was in 2011? Mm. The 50 basis
1: point hike that the ECB has now done took the policy rate only back to zero. And, but they did, I think, suggest that further hikes were coming. So although the ECB, in its country kind of policy statement, pulled back from forward guidance and sort of explicitly saying, you know, we'll hike this amount on this date... The overall tone and tenor of, of the meeting was that more interest rate hikes are coming, precisely as you say, Luke, to tackle this high inflation situation, high gas prices, a reasonably tight labor market and emerging wage pressures as well. And importantly, there's an interaction here between the transmission protection instrument and the path of interest rate hikes, because the more the transmission protection instrument is used, the stronger it is, the more of a backstop it is for funding costs in more vulnerable peripheral Eurozone economies, the more ECB can actually do to hike the risk-free rate, because in the process of hiking that risk-free rate, it will be somewhat less worried about causing a huge volatile period in peripheral um, sovereign debt markets as well. So these interact, and actually the TPI allows interest rates to go higher. So I actually think that there's more... 50 basis point hikes to come from the ECB. Perhaps they could do another one in September and then perhaps another in October as well. But crucially, the economic activity outlook is worsening, as we said at the start of the podcast. And recession is probably coming in the Eurozone, partly because interest rates are going to go higher and funding costs are going up, but also because of this panoply of other headwinds that the economy is facing. So I think Eventually, that rate hiking cycle will probably be brought to an end. It'll be truncated early by a weakening in the economy. And I'm not sure that history will then go back and judge it in the way that it judges the 2011 Trichet rate hike as having been a policy error and a mistake. I mean, Trichet then was perhaps um, kind of jumping at at ghosts of, of inflation worries. This time around, it is very clear that inflation is well beyond and above the target. So some tightening to bring inflation under control, I think, is quite straightforwardly justified. It's just that this time around, it's negative supply side shocks, which mean inflation higher, but are also pretty bad for economic activity that's the invidious position that the ECB finds itself in and why we think that this rate hiking cycle probably gets shortened and you could actually be back in a situation of rate cuts even in the full-blown recession further down the road.
0: An invidious position indeed Paul and I guess what this conversation has brought out is how that complex interaction between politics and economics is combining at the moment to create a particularly difficult situation for policymakers and of course we bill ourselves as a politics and economics podcast so of course this is grist to our mill and it's no doubt a theme that we will be returning to in September when we come back from our summer break Um, so thank you very much for listening to the podcast please do Subscribe, like us on your podcast platform of choice. And we look forward to speaking to you again in September when we return. So thanks very much. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for information purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment, recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections or estimates and provide no guarantee of future results.